Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I'm utterly delighted to have Mike Sachs on today. He is so funny. He wrote um, Your Wildest Dreams Within Reason, um, which is a compilation of all of these essays he has written, some of them co-written, for places like, oh, I don't know, The New Yorker and GQ. We talk about how hard it is to get into those magazines and how even when you do get in, you still have to pitch again and again. But his stuff is so funny. Um, He's also co-written Sex, Our Bodies, Our Junk, and... And here's the kicker, Conversations with 21 Humor Writers, which is a must read for anyone with a pulse. And also if you're just remotely interested in comedy, stand up, writing, sketch, improv, read that book. He has a second one coming out. I just liked having someone interviewing people about comedy who is also really funny. There's something important about that instead of having, I don't know, so often it's like people who don't really have a sense of humor and they just kind of worship comics and they... There's too much of a sycophantic quality, whereas this is coming from someone who knows what it's like to struggle um, with finding the right words and also knows how to get over and out of that struggle. So it's just a more nuanced conversation at that point. But you know what? I'm about to kill that frog by overanalyzing it. Talking about that quote from E.B. White, which you guys all know about what happens when you dissect a frog. Um, That's not what happened in our conversation. What happened was just pure orgasmic delight. So... If you're ready for an orgasm, keep listening in five, four, three, two, and one. I am content to be here with <laughs> Mike Sachs. He's the author of it, and here's the kicker, Conversations with 21 Human... Good God, this woman. <laughs> I am here with Mike Sachs. <laughs> I am sad to be here with <laughs> He's the author of, and here's the kicker, Conversations with 21 Humor Writers About Their Craft. He also co-wrote Sex, Our Bodies, Are Junk. And in February of 2011, he published his own book called Your Wildest Dreams Within Reason, which are all of his humor pieces, several of which you may have read in The New Yorker, Esquire, Time, Vanity Fair, McSweeney's. And he's also doing a new uh, follow-up book to, um, and here's the kicker, which is called Poking a Dead Frog, More Conversations with Humor Writers. I'm not sure if I'm going to be in it, but we'll see how the interview goes. You'll be in it, sister. <laughs> Actually, it's not called Poking a Dead Frog oh, anymore. Oh, I apologize. No, that's, I have not changed that. You may want to up- update your website. Um, it's, that, that's assistant. a working title. Have your assistant update that. I will have Jenny <laughs> contact you. That is a working title. I don't know what the full title is yet, but I will not be working with that title. And Mike is an editor at Vanity Fair. Mike Sachs, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Writers Guild. Mm, thank you. You would be a, a member here if your writing wasn't so respected and distinguished, but you were just out to make money. I am trying to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, don't even know what the WGA does. Uh, they host this wonderful podcast, among other things. Okay, we should explain where we are first, a very cozy room. Okay, it is a very cozy boardroom that I think goes about 40 feet wide and 30 feet deep. And looks quite intimidating. I feel like we could be in any boardroom. It is not conducive to creativity. <laughs> no, it is definitely not. In fact, it reminds me of D.C. <laughs> Which is where both Mike Zax and I are from, although I'm technically from D.C. I, I can really say I'm from D.C. because my mayor was Marion Barry mm. in his height. Well, he was mayor when I was living in D.C. Um, did you have a curfew? No. We had a curfew. Well, where was your curfew? Well, I lived in a really tough neighborhood where you had to walk to piano lessons. What was the neighborhood? It's called Wesley Heights. Oh, yeah. 
Um, it was yeah. really, really rough. I think there was one black family, mm -hmm. and they would make the Obamas look like they... The Huxtables. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I was going to say they look, would make them look like underachievers. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you were going. Okay. <laughs> like the opposite. And then I think we were the one Jewish family. My neighbor told me that I lived in a shack, and this is in D.C. where there are shacks. <laughs> I know. Wow. Um, we were not waspy enough. But no. I'd wear the same polo every day to my friend's country club. What was the country club? Okay, she went to, um, what's the... The Jewish one. Yeah. yeah where Mori Povich goes. Right. I'll think of it in a second. Yeah, you know, a lot of those clubs were, even when I was growing up, they did not allow Jews or blacks in. Like I, oh, I would absolutely. take tennis lessons at BCC. Yes. I, that's so interesting. And... Um, there were no Jews allowed to be members, not that we could have afforded to be members. But this isn't the 1880s, this is the 1980s. Right. And I remember going with a black friend, Wesley Days, to play tennis, and um, he received some heat from, from the teacher. Uh, according to the teacher, he wasn't wearing the appropriate tennis whites, so poor Wesley had to leave. He could not play that day with me. Even but you played lessons. alone? No, I played with someone else. <laughs> but you didn't go with him. You just let We went with him. He was a friend of ours. We all went to these lessons together. But he I know, but you didn't leave with him when that happened. Well, he went to the lounge <laughs> and had a burger. I don't know. What, was I supposed to leave with him? <laughs> what kind of guy am I? You're supposed to stand with him at that well, moment. Well, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't leave. <laughs> we, we, didn't, we didn't drive at this point. So. <laughs> so I let him do what he had to do, and I did what I had to do. My friend. <laughs> <laughs> Is that horrible? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. It, it's the it's the it's the approach I would imagine a humor writer would take. It's yeah. It's not the approach. A human like, sorry, being would sorry, take. Wesley. <laughs> I'll see you in fifty. Yeah. <laughs> my my older brother was kicked out of my grandmother's country club because he had navy shorts on mm -hmm. and he had to wear white shorts. This is in D.C. No, that was in Palm Beach, Florida. You would expect it to be different down there. You, you would expect them to allow navy shorts. Yeah, or not to. It wasn't a Jewish issue, though, because this was, I think, this no. was an ethnic issue. No, no, issue. that was a clearly an ethnic issue. And, and I have to say that when I was growing up, which is only shortly after you, there would be one token black family and one token Jewish family. There were no Jews in my neighborhood where my parents moved in. They're just lawyers, and they were like, nope. Right, D.C. was very Southern in the 60s and 70s when my parents moved there. Yes. Weren't many Jews. In fact, my parents talk about and this is not up there with Moses having to wander in the desert for 40 years, no. but they could not find a bagel in Northern Virginia. Yes. That, that has since changed. I very much was aware of my uh, Jewishness, and I mean, I had horrible things happen to me. Like, I, I do feel like, I did feel the anti-Semitism yeah. strongly. I felt it, I mean, it wasn't overpowering. It was almost like jokey. Like, here comes, can I, is this a PG or? You know, it's really fucking up to you what you decide okay, to say Okay, um, here comes the kike. <laughs> Wow. Now, this was said by friends that I worked with, and it was sort of joking, and it didn't really bother me because they were friends, but looking back, it was kind of strange. I was keenly aware. I mean, I, that polo shirt, that Ralph Lipschitz shirt, I took from my cousin, and I would wear it every day to my friend's country club so I could fit in, not thinking that they probably think you're, like, right. <laughs> neglected because you don't shower. You take wear the same shirt every day. But that's real old-school wasp, though. I mean, that's something yeah. you can picture the, these Gentiles doing with so much money that it doesn't matter what they wear every day. Yeah, that, well, they never wore nouveau riche. You know, they didn't dress fancily either. I mean, that, that is the oddity about no, real I wasp culture is not, is not a big... I mean, Ralph Lauren created wasp culture for the masses, but, like, the right. real wasps that I know... Right. 
they don't buy anything. No, and that's the thing. I mean, my Jewish friends would, would be obsessed with the latest. Yes, yes, yes. Aka Joe, you remember Aka Joe? No, what is that? It was a big thing in Maryland. No, it uh, was a small thing, but it was a big thing to you. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I had a friend who worked <laughs> there, actually. Uh, what is Aka Joe? Aka Joe was sort of a hip place that sold upscale clothes in White Flint Mall. Oh, wow. Oh, you went, you were already out in White, so I oh, didn't yeah. even have a mall. White Flint, that's amazing. And that time, White Flint was the upper ranks of malls. They had see-through elevators, glass elevators, which were a huge deal. It was much okay, more fancy. I remember this. I remember my mom would drive me out there. Yeah, they, they had, had a, a food Bloomingdale's. Court. Yes, right. Yeah. They had a food court. And Bloomies. Bloomies. <laughs> had companies and Bloomies. Yeah, and actually, I worked right near there later on at Kentmo Records off Rockville Pike. It, were you in love with music and that's why you worked there? Yeah, I was. I was in love. I mean, this was even at, I worked there 10 years, 15 to 25. You're like a Nick Hornby character. I am, aren't I? I mean, well, that's the thing. A lot of people say, hey, was your life like, um, what was that movie, uh, High Fidelity? Yes. No, it was hell. It was awful. I mean, I was selling the Bodyguard soundtrack on cassette for four ninety nine. Wait, you may have sold that to me. That was my first. I did first, sell that to you. That was I my first that. cassette tape. I have uh, surveillance <laughs> footage of me selling that to you. That was my very first cassette tape. I got that and Like a Virgin. Those wow. were my very first. At, at Kentmel Records? Yeah. It was a strange place, too. No, I apologize. I think I got mine at Tower Records. Tower was the one that was the hipper one. This was sort of low rent in some bad areas. I later worked in Aspen Hill, right behind a housing project. And so that's much rough. That's more... So I grew up in this waspy neighborhood, but I would go to ska shows and hang out mm -hmm. in a... Um, I would say more rough world. And then I volunteered so much, so I was doing a lot of... Where'd you volunteer? So I did about 12 hours a week, at, like in junior year and senior year. Because got, you had to? I, I was going, no, I was like obsessed with it and just also sad and lonely inside. Really? Where'd you volunteer? Um, so mainly at Martha's Table, but then I worked at a Head Start every week too. That's great. Why, were you, why would being sad have anything to do with you having to volunteer? Because it helped me like, it's for, I was a very sad kid and like had had a horrible, my best friend was killed when I was in oh. ninth grade. He was uh, killed by lightning. Are, you know what? That's a very common thing in that area. There's a lot of trees. At a lacrosse game. And there's, uh, you know, where is this? At Landon? He went to Landon. It was at St. Albans. Yeah, because that, that was a common thing. And it was very strong storms that would come through. So the poor kid was killed by a lightning yeah. strike. So that happened, and then I was attacked by a skinhead. And so I think, like, the combination of those two things. It wasn't Ian Mackay of Fugazi, was it? No, no, okay. no. Then there'd be a book about it. Yeah. What happened? This guy him. just attacked you? Yeah. For any reason? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, the only other time I saw him, he Heil Hitlered me, actually in Mazda Gallery. Oh, at Mazda Gallery, he Heil Hitlered. Yeah. Wow. An upscale okay. mall on uh, unbelievably Wisconsin upscale. Avenue. And I was going Boulevard. down the subway, Metro is what it's called. It's going down the Metro, metro uh, escalator, and he was going up, and he Heil Hitlered me, wow. and I never saw him again. And it was just, a, I was trauma. I mean, it was, ninth grade for me was such a painfully dark, dark, dark year. and. It's sort of hard to, like, at 15, know what to do with those things. So I, I just threw myself into volunteering and, like, working with kids in foster Because care. of the Hitler salute? I think because of being attacked and my best friend dying, I think there was, I felt responsible for his death and... Oh, my goodness. And so much guilt and sadness and... Wow. Because um, I was like, if I had only taken him in to see this photo exhibit by my brother at St. Albans, then he wouldn't have been stuck outside in the rain and he wouldn't have been hit. What, you were going to take him to this? He asked to come and, and I said, you know, I'll meet you after because I was with these oh, no. cool girls that I wanted to impress. That's and, terrible. 
Yeah, so it was my fault. And it wasn't your fault. You can't look back and say it was your fault. We yeah. all have friends that died. Who are yours? I had someone commit suicide. But you know, you look back and you, you do think it's your fault at the time, but in retrospect. My fault that I didn't do more. Not that he died. Right, well, that's, that's that the guilt, is, is doing more. What, but having a friend commit suicide, how old were you? That's so, I'm so 20. sorry. Okay. Yeah, very I, violent suicide. Do you mind talking about it or? or um, well, I don't want to say her name, but she okay. did end up shooting herself with a shotgun she ordered through the mail. So she knew weeks ahead of time that she was going to kill herself. Wow. wow. And I ran into her a few days before and we were friends, we had been together a little bit, and uh, I just was busy for whatever reason, didn't stop and ask her about her school. And I, I sort of knew she was unhappy at school with the assumption I would talk to her down the road and that just never came about. It's so um, painfully sad, because it's, uh, as you're saying, like when I'm listening to you, I'm like, it's definitely not your fault in hindsight. It's mm -hmm. so much easier to understand the gravitas that you never would have known right. to look for that's bananas to think anyone would Yeah, know. I mean, we do everything every day that we don't think about later because there's no repercussions. But, yeah. you know, it was just a, a quick meeting outside of a mall. Yes. And I didn't think twice about it until I heard, because yeah, there's always a future. Yes. You know, I see her. At, I would see her at Thanksgiving. I would see her at the next summer break, whatever. And the age that we're at, you of course are only about the future because everything looks bright. Right. There's no past, and that was really the first demarcation where okay, there's a past. Yes. Because when that happened, it was uh, you know I started looking backwards at that point. My I can I consider that the equivalent of a genuine bar mitzvah for me that year of or bat mitzvah. Uh, uh, being 15, of understanding. Because at 13, you don't become a woman or a man. That's a joke. No, that happened for me at 11, but. Right. I don't want to. <laughs> Actually, I do. What happened? No, nothing. I was just kidding. <laughs> I know. I, know. I was just yes anding. And also in seventh grade, it was a really wonderful thing to be more womanly. Mm -hmm. But in eighth grade, I got usurped by someone who was even more womanly. How so? I feel like she was good at sticking out her chest, but I think she would argue that she actually had a bigger one. Oh, yeah. So that upset you that she was taking well, more I, of the attention? I, I, did, I lost the attention that I had. Did that you ever I, regain that in high school? I have to say uh, no. I never regained that. Nor did I aspire to, but I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't regain that. It was too traumatizing at that age. Right. It's also traumatizing. That was the end of popularity. And clearly that was as traumatizing as being attacked by a skinhead and losing your best Now, friend. do you think that you <laughs> went into humor because of this? No. I think I went into humor because I've always been funny. And I feel like there are people, you know, that the friend who died, for example, has family and friends who are not necessarily funny but lost the same person. I think three people can survive the Holocaust right. and have different reactions. And one becomes Ellie Wiesel and one is traumatized for life. And, and one's Jackie Mason who never went to the Holocaust. There you go. But why do you think that you were funny? Like what was the escape for you through humor? What was, how See, did I don't look at it that way, but I do like that you interview the interviewer. I think that pathologizing comedians um, is odd because you wouldn't do that with a musician. Like if someone was just musically talented, you wouldn't be like, what happened in but your childhood? But it's different though, because it's not a sensibility. That's, that's a, that's okay, a yes. So right, the frame of reference, the ability to look outside of the box. I had a really crazy childhood. Mm -hmm. um, I was lived in fear as a little kid. <laughs> And um, I would escape into talking to all these crazy voices. 
So I would like talk like this every day, and then I'd be like, God damn, oh shit, I'm going to kill you. Don't talk to me that way, Rufus. And I would have imaginary friends. Rufus. I would constantly have friends that I create, these characters that come down to dinner in different outfits. Because you, you hear of Andy Kaufman doing that, Gilda Radner doing that, a lot of these comedians. I lived in my head. And I went to a psychiatrist about my voices because I thought something was wrong with me. Yeah. And you thought or your mother thought? No, my parents didn't know. You went on your own? Yeah. How old? Uh, 15. Wow. Mike, do you ever go to therapy? Oh, yeah. Only late. When? Yesterday? You were late to your appointment? I was late to my appointment. <laughs> I started going maybe eight years ago, and I was a disaster. I should have. What gone. was going on in your life? OCD, depression, what anxiety. Is, what is OCD specifically? How does it manifest itself for you? Well, there are numbers, lucky numbers, uh, hand washing, having to look at things in a certain way. Which way is that? Well, it depends on the object, and it depends on the on the certain situation. You know, if I'm walking down the street, especially if I'm anxious, and I see something. I'll maybe have to look behind it. It depends on a, on a certain situation. It's not like every post office box I have to look behind it. It just depends on how I'm feeling in that moment. So that when I do what's required in that moment, um, it, the itch is scratched and I can move on. But if I don't do it, it, it'll haunt me. It feels like it's getting a lot of attention now in the way that it's like autism for a while was getting a lot of attention and now it feels like OCD is and before that yeah. borderline was getting a lot of it. Right. And I think that, you know, it's not that there are more cases that it's just finally being discussed, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, when I was coming up, I thought I was crazy. They were, I, didn't know about, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anyone else who had it. This is pre-internet, of course. Yeah, well, same with, same with talking like this. I thought that there was something wrong, that I couldn't control myself. You couldn't Google funny voice and Rufus? There was no Google. And right. Rufus is my friend. He's not yours. No, that's true. Yeah, I, was, I didn't know anyone, who, and I was ashamed of it. And I think it's more common than believed, and I think people are just now comfortable coming out talking about it. About OCD? Yeah. Yes. Now, there yes, di are different degrees. Didn't I, didn't I just say that? Like <laughs> You did, but see, my OCD, I have to repeat it. I have to repeat it one more time. It's like, did we just have a complete liberal arts college <laughs> moment where I, like, make a comment and then you repeat it? Yeah. <laughs> but just rephrase it. I better. just rephrased it. You rephrased it better. There's a reason that you write for Vanity Fair and the New York Times and the New Yorker and I. Mine had a more of a, more of a ring of diary. truth to it. Yes, right, because it was, it was an I statement, and it was a genuine one. And it was a, it was a crackle of emotion, as I said it. When you brought up, um, you know, I didn't fully answer the question, but when you, when you were saying, you know, thinking out of the box, like I was saying, yes, I do feel that my circumstances propelled me to think out of the box. Mm -hmm. I do think that the inherent and innate talent was already there. I don't know. That's the mystery. I mean, you know, people rely on what they're good at. And when, if you're an outsider as a kid and you're good at sports, you're gonna, you know, you'll possibly rely on that. But you also develop that muscle. So, like, right. if I'm talking to myself in imaginary characters, and I keep doing that as a way to escape, and I get really comfortable with those characters, and then those characters have lives, and then all of a sudden I've got Henry Horner, and I put him in Coolidge Corner. I took this project in Chicago, and I moved him to a very nice suburb in Boston. He's got a whole life, and now he's not even writing me anymore mm -hmm. um, because he's really blossomed. I've this is Henry Horner or Rufus? A totally different character. Okay. And then I've, you know, allowed him to grow up and be on his own. We don't even keep in touch anymore. Right. Well, he got family. you through a difficult period. And I think I helped him also as a, a single at-risk, uh, you know, African-American kid. He was really struggling. Was Rufus African-American? No, no. Rufus is Indonesian. Okay. 
Um, so I feel like I'm. <laughs> in fairness, I didn't I didn't describe ethnicity to all of them. But what, what I would say is like you then develop that muscle. So right. So I'm like doing these crazy characters, which is insane. Right. But it then becomes a muscle later for um, theater and comedy. And had I and writing, which is what I do, like had I had someone push that earlier, maybe I would have known you could make a career out of it. it What's strange later. about that, you weren't receiving external reward for that. No. Because you weren't saying jokes and getting a response. This is all... But I did get awards for my creative writing. No, that's right. I was not getting any reward for that. But the reward, I suppose, was an escape. That it allowed you to escape from a certain situation. Yeah. That was a comfortable place to go that you controlled. And friends thought it was weird and funny. So you did tell friends about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't... I was rabid. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't not it's talk like to these characters. It's like a DC version of Middle Earth. <laughs> <laughs> my friends knew, my older brother knew, the woman who took, grew, um, took care of us growing up, you know, they all knew. Was your brother okay with it? He loved it. Well, he that's sweet. Crazy. All right, well, that's good. So, like, everyone really around me knew, so in that sense, I think I was validated. My parents didn't know. And, um, and then I would win these awards for creative writing. What about you? Well, I won nothing. I mean, I, I didn't, it just became a, a thing to fall back on because um, out of a shyness, a social shyness, I could stand on the corner and say something funny rather than being in the mix doing the wavy gravy or whatever. Who does the wavy gravy? No one, but you know, in theory, people <laughs> back then were doing the wavy gravy. What is the wavy gravy? It's a Grateful Dead. And what I'm saying is that <laughs> I wasn't at the dance dancing is what I was saying. You were in the, I feel like you would have been mean to me growing up. You know what, I was so insecure, I probably would have been. Yeah, I mean, because you're very, very funny. I mean, your humor writing is so funny, and I feel like you articulate for me things that I've thought but could never put together in that way, things that I would never think of. I mean, you really are a consummate humor writer in that sense. Like what? Well, for example, I love your Anne Frank rejections letter. I mean, like, that to me is just... So I've cathartic that her book gets rejected because there have been so many like Oh, it. yeah, it's a disaster. Well, I've read that out loud and it got zero laughs. It's a strange piece in that sense because it's not making fun of the Holocaust. It's not making at fun all. of the publishing industry. Absolutely. Just, that, that they just scoff at her pieces if everyone's done this before. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's no need for There's her. There's no need. And that she should start a blog instead or whatever it is. <laughs> and find herself a boyfriend. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, the publishing industry is a disaster. But it also felt cathartic to read this from someone who's so established. I mean, here you are an editor at Vanity Fair, and you write for The New Yorker, and it just feels like I would kill to have one of your credits. It doesn't matter, though, in the end. I think what matters in the end is doing what you want. So you're doing what you want. No, I, I wouldn't want to do those things. But why? What, where is it going to lead? I would just be happy to like have one of my humor pieces published in the New Yorker. I mean, it's amazing. It really is. I didn't, but I say that, did you grow up reading the New Yorker? Yes! I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up, I didn't read the New Yorker until post-college. I mean, how does it feel for you the first time? When was the first time? Great. It was like eight, nine years ago. And what was the piece? It was a piece, it was a propaganda leaflet dropped over a woman's house, um, and a boyfriend was trying to convince her to get back together with him. And the propaganda leaflet was propaganda about how he's not as bad as she might think he is. Where in reality, the guy's a disaster. He yes. rents a plane and drops flyers. <laughs> he doesn't even know how to fly. So that was the first piece, and then four or five came after that. I mean, it's great. I, you know, it's, it's an amazing... Four or five pieces came after that. Over the years, 
though. It was a lot of effort. How did you know how to who to submit to, and, and how did you know that this was the right voice for Go, it? Because well, I work in the building, and I knew someone who knew the editor, and it was only through that. It wasn't because of I was so great. It was because, hey, can you take a look at Mike's work? And she kindly said yes. Okay. Did she shape it so that it would fit in The New Yorker more, or did you nail the voice? No, the well, she cut a lot. She's a great editor, and she okay. knows how that would fit. It, it ran long, and she... As she says, she makes it drier rather than wetter, meaning she'll, she'll cut it down rather than have you add jokes to it. So her job is to make it fit into The New Yorker, which she's great at, and that's what she did for that piece. That's also a huge boon to hear that the editor takes a piece, knows that it's funny, and instead of rejecting it by saying, this doesn't fit for us, because I think that as a writer, you're dependent on someone giving you a break in. Like you're not going to really hone their voice until you've done it a couple times. Well, I think that's that's what she means by making it drier. She, she there's been plenty of times where I send her a piece and she says it doesn't work, and um, I don't get to rework it. But okay. for this piece, it was maybe ninety percent there, and the ten percent had to do with cutting out. So even still now, there'll be times where your piece doesn't fit for. Oh yeah, all the time. I mean it's. Do you know that that's going to happen before you submit it? No, I don't. It's, and the problem is that you have to, I have to completely write the piece. This is not like pitching to another magazine like Esquire. Hey, can I write a uh, fake um, story about the Sh Concordia that that drowned, you know, that uh, went under? You know, whatever it happens to be. With this, I'd have to go and write a thousand-word piece that's perfect from beginning to end, with the not having the knowledge that she may reject it in a second because she doesn't want that type of piece in there or that there's an article, a nonfiction article in the magazine that it would be um, jarring against. So I'm writing blind, but I'm not just pitching blind. I'm writing the whole piece blind. Yes, and you brought up the fact that there may be a serious piece coming out that you never knew about, even not just in the nonfiction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, like it's the Kremlin. It you don't know what's going on in there. And you just make the piece as good as you can and hope that it'll fit. If it doesn't, you know, you can send it elsewhere. It's a little depressing to know that, like, after you've done it a bunch of times, you still have this sense of, like, I don't oh, know Oh, it's, it's a work. total mystery. Yeah. It's, it's still a total mystery. What about, like, with the New York Times? Well, New York Times was through, through my friend Teddy Wayne. Who, who you had, often, often work, write yeah, with. Yeah. And he has actually a great new book out, The Love Song of Johnny Valentine. I'm so glad you promoted that because I'm just worried that he's not getting enough airtime. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, it's a, it deserves every ounce of... I agree. Of, Didn't you come up with the idea for it? Um, we came up... Well, I was a suggestion on my part. Um, I, was, I wanted to take it in a different direction, but no, it's not like he stole the idea. I mean, he wrote the I whole book. I didn't mean steal, because I think it, it, I often will encourage writers I know or actors, you know, to do something. And it's, it's not that they stole it. Like, I yeah. know that they can do a good job with something or I think this fits for them. No, what happened was I, was, I wanted to write a, uh, a parody of a po teen pop star's tell-all biography. And it would look like something you would buy next to the Tiger Beat. You know, those quickie yes. books. Yeah. And um, he liked the idea but wanted to take it in a different direction so that it became something actually better. It's fabulous. I, the, the weekend that his book had a huge review on the cover of the New York Times, he also had two articles in the New York Times. He's a monster, that guy. He is um, unstoppable. He's a very fast, very good writer. Yeah, I think that the, that's right. Very good and very fast. Very fast. No, he, he's top notch. And then also lucky. You think so? Yeah, I think it is, uh, there's a certain bit of luck to. I guess, but the guy works really, really hard. That's not, that's, I, I assume he works very hard. But what, where does luck come into it? Luck comes into it in that I think for 
those of you guys who are often in GQ and Esquire and um, Vanity Fair and New York Times that you may not realize that there are a lot of people out there who work just as hard who won't get in. They won't get that foot in the door. They won't learn how to write for those places. I do think there is some luck involved, but it also requires pushing. And he went after the right people. He networked and he got to where he needed to be. I mean, it, that is half of writing right there is the business aspect, the marketing yes, aspect. Yes, and knowing who those right people were, knowing how to talk to them in a way that they take you seriously. Yeah, it's a business, you know, you have to yeah. treat it like anything. Yes, but I think that there are, well, I think that just reinforces what I was saying. What do you feel, are you talking from a personal standpoint that you feel that you should be in some places that you're not in? I always feel that way, yeah. But what do you think is holding you back? I think part of it's personal. Um, meaning that I, I'm not talking to the right people or getting the foot in the door. Well, what would prevent you from doing that? Um, you know, Mike, like, you and I could pitch the same story, and I think that, it, let's pretend like you've never written for any of these places. Let's just, like, put us all both on the same slate. You might do a better job of pitching yourself. All right, well, I think that or can be... Or let's take us out. Let's <coughs> take Teddy out. Like, let's take the individuals out, because I, I, was, I was using Teddy as an example because he's enormously talented, yes, and yes. I would say, like, hyper competent in a way that like so once he got that chance he kicked it out of the field or, or you know kicked it out of the ballpark kind of thing but to get that chance is still luck yeah I don't I think so but you know also you don't you, you made it clear that you don't think well not that. really I mean listen I, I worked <laughs> like as I was saying in a record for 10 years and the media world was on the moon for me I, it might as well have been on the moon you know yeah. I knew nothing about it and there are, it shouldn't be as mysterious as you think it is. There are things you can do yes. that can help your chances that you just learn through time. What are those things? Well, I mean, you know, it can be anything from you don't pitch the editor-in-chief an idea because he's not going to be reading it. Yes. To you don't pitch an editorial assistant because they're too low on the totem pole, so you go to, like, an associate editor. Yeah. And if they don't like it, you go to someone else. Uh, there's a lot of things people do that I see at Vanity Fair. You know, they'll, they'll send me ideas and then they'll copyright it as if I'm going to steal it. Well, that shows that they're sort of amateurs. So there yeah. are things to avoid, things to not do yeah. that you can learn and teach yourself that I, I don't really think are covered in writing classes. I don't think they're covered at all, and I often feel like you know there's some writing teachers who are phenomenally gifted teachers. There are people who are right. gifted writers who you can learn from their work. Um, and then there are people who are neither, but somehow like <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people are to teach. especially when it comes to comedy. There's a lot of people who, ha on the credit, they they it'll be tried to sell one script to yes. Cheers yes. 20 years ago yes. and came close to having it sold. I was like, why are you teaching a course? Because you you're not successful financially yes. nor creatively. Or did one season on a show and then they're like right. They worked on Mama's Family for one yeah. year as a yeah. writer and now they they can teach. But you know, going back to but they may be a good. I mean, some of those people are genuinely good teachers, but they're not going to teach you the business. But aspects. the problem is, a lot of teachers in colleges are writing professors who don't have to struggle and sell in the real world. Yes. And that's a whole different ballgame than sending it off to the um, Canyon Review yeah. once a year, a, a poem or something. I mean, the difference for me, I would say, is that when a f colleague recommends me, the likelihood of me getting it read is, I mean, it's night and day. So now it gets read. Absolutely. Well, I, mean, I just like, if I were to just uh, submit something to someone at the New Yorker or New York Times, but that's There's a good no lesson because that goes me. for anything. I mean, you can have a fantastic resume, apply for a position, just say anywhere, New York Times, and it wouldn't have the force if you had a, a, a less powerful resume and you met this woman the night before at a cocktail party and you hit it off. Yeah. 
you know, and that is extremely important to have a face attached to your name because there's just so much competition out there. I mean, editors are being pitched hundreds of times a week. I mean, just to get into the cocktail party, like that type of thing, I definitely need a friend to recommend me. Do you want to be there, though? Do you? Sounds okay. like I do if I want to. If I yeah, that's true. This woman just accepted <laughs> your New York Times resume. <laughs> Sounds like I do, considering I have four hundred dollars in my checking account, which oh, is also no. my savings account. Right now, you do. Yeah, I need to get a job. How do I get a job, Mike Sachs? What type of job are you looking for? I feel like one that doesn't have voices, like imaginary friends in it. That could be tough. Well, not, yeah, because most of them require that, right? Yeah. Well, I think if you went into an interview talking as Rufus, I think you would kill. <laughs> But make it clear, this is an Indonesian-American. This is not African. Well, that's what sets him apart. I mean, that, I noticed that you assume that they would all be African-American characters, and I can write for anyone. That's just my racism. <laughs> I hear the name Rufus, I go straight to thoughts in my head. But no, I can see now he Rufus... He was not a hermaphrodite. <coughs> I didn't think he was, but... Well, some people assume that, though. It was a total shock to hear that he was Indonesian, and it was actually a great surprise. So. Yes, yeah, because people make assumptions. They shouldn't. You know. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. They would think that he worked at Kent Mel Records and he would never have worked No. There. Where did he work, Rufus? I, you know, Rufus at the time didn't work much, although he did work the door. That is not true. He did work the door at the 930 Club. Wow, what a job, Rufus. <laughs> you might have seen me going to a Feelys concert. He probably did. I remember, go, you know, we'd go to these shows at the time and I remember my dad would go to lunch at some place that was a lunch place during the day and then was this... <laughs> You know, <laughs> concert place during the night. I was so freaked out. I was like, how did my dad know about Fugazi? How did he know about Fugazi? He didn't. He had no idea. He just ate lunch at this one restaurant that happened to also, like... Really? What restaurant was it? I can't remember, and I've, like, constantly That's asked That's an amazing... Him. He's part of, of rock history. <laughs> and he has no idea. I think idea. they wrote a song about him, didn't they? <laughs> so, okay, I want to ask you, like, you decided to go full-time at Vanity Fair. What is your job there? Uh, editorial staff, and, um, you know, we work with authors... We, uh, you do a podcast, too, where you guys, I love the authors reading authors. Oh, okay. I, you meant for the website? Yeah. I thought you meant Ted and myself. Ted and, Ted, Ted Travelstead. Who is so funny. Uh, we uh, work together as comedy writers when we're not working at Vanity Fair. Yes, uh, VF.com has a very good podcast, but I'm not really associated with that. Okay, but you're on it. I have been on it. When my last book came out, I read uh, off of uh, Science Your College uh, is bad. Yes, like the clapping hands for the marching band. Yes, like right. If, say it correctly because I, I don't want to step on the joke. Well, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something oh. like marching band only uses claps. Yes. Like <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so th I read it on that. You listened to that podcast? Yeah, I thought it was lo lovely. I mean, you know, and Buck Henry's on another one and he's reading um, The Forge, this riveting book. I mean, did you talk to Buck Henry? I did. And how was that? Um, I feel like I'm, I love him. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, what's interesting to me is to be so prolific and then remember everything, too. I know. Whereas I've done nothing and I don't remember much of it. Yeah, he remembers everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst, isn't it? Not remembering what you didn't do. <laughs> so it was both that I was so fascinated with, that he's a, a walking encyclopedia. And I love when artists genuinely love art. I think that's what sets you apart, is that the fact that you can talk to all these humor writers and be equally adept and funny yourself yeah. um, is really beautiful. But here's the thing. I, I love when people get a kick out of their own field, and he does. Uh, he does. He genuinely likes it. But I wouldn't necessarily think that, think that his life is easy street. I think that everyone no. at every level struggles. So I don't think everyone at every level struggles, I but think I think so. that Buck Henry does. I think everyone at every level. It's a different level of struggle. 
But the, the, right, that there are new challenges. Well, you know, everyone has problems with Hollywood. You know, even the top people. Everyone, Let's name people there who don't have any problems. Well, name some. Okay, um, George Clooney. Okay, maybe he doesn't. He's very handsome. Yeah. I'm talking about comedy people, though. Comedy people who don't have any trouble. Right. Okay, I, on a recent podcast, tried to say that Louis C.K. might have troubles and challenges. He might very well. And That's the thing. the other comedian refuted that point immediately. I don't think so. I mean, he, he has complete control through a deal with what, IFC, is it yeah. IFC? Which is fantastic, and that's why, I mean, not that's why, but that's one of the reasons why he's exploded, and he's an incredible talent. But if he were to go out to Hollywood, I bet you those executives would say to him, hey, you can do anything you want, he'd write a script, and then they would try to make it into a rom-com, or they would try to rewrite the jokes. But he, he's done huge movies with Chris Rock. All right, were those his versions? I think they were. I feel like Pootie Tang all right. was not written by a studio. <laughs> it's not, but it, I don't think that was big money we're talking about. I'm talking about a studio. Well, and I guess that's it. Like, what equals big money to me is not going to be But what I'm saying is you. I don't think anyone has it on Easy Street. And I, I, I hear this a lot from people who haven't been published, who think of... I've been published, and I don't think that it's easy. I think it's new challenges, but I still stand by the idea that there are certain people who success begets success. And for the folks that I know who broke in early and didn't face the same type of rejection, they make their lives easier on themselves because they expect to do well, number one. And number two, they do have, they were able to make mistakes when they were younger, they were able to learn those things when they were younger so they're not doing them later in life when it's the real deal. I, I do think it is easier for them. I also think some people are, are perfectly happy and other people are unhappy. No, I think everyone's miserable and I think the yeah, sooner you realize that, that, the I happier you'll be. That I totally disagree with. I, I think so. I mean, some people are genuinely happy in their lives. I feel very grateful to do what I do, even though I have no money. Are you happy in your life? In, in creatively, I am. I would love But it sounds like you want more. Money. Yes, absolutely. All right, so I think even those who have incredible credits, cool. such as the person who did... Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the, yes. the writer. What's his name? It's, it's, Charlie Kaufman. Yes. He just went on Kickstarter, right, to try to fund a movie. He couldn't get funded in Hollywood. Okay, so how, so, all right, so th here's a good example. And the guy's brilliant. He, absolutely beyond brilliant, and, and um, his films are phenomenal. That frustrates me because he's so talented. But I feel angry when someone like Zach Braff, who has millions of dollars, Goes on Kickstarter. All right. Why did why would he why did he go on Kickstarter? Because though? he didn't want to give any money back to his backers, but he has money, so he's asking people who make you know one forty seventh of what he has in his personal savings to give money to him. Well, first of all, I, we don't know anything. We don't know how much he has. We don't know how much control he would have had through Hollywood. He was on Scrubs for he, a very well, long time. He, yeah, but I'm talking about making a movie. And to make a script, he may have very well been shot down by Hollywood with the script that he now is going. You see, the thing is, we don't know about people's failures, so we just assume everyone is a great success. Okay, but I, no, you can make some assumptions. I can make some assumptions that a person who has been on a long-time network television show, whose estimated net worth is over five, ten million dollars, okay. who's at an estimated at twenty-two million dollars, is in a better financial position than some of the people he's going to be reaching out to on Kickstarter. But he wants to make a movie for $10 million, so he's not going to pour all his life savings down into the movie. I, there's something there that makes me very sad because he's, he's taking, he's not taking away, like, the people who choose to, I, I get it, look, the people choose to give to him. No one has to give but to him. But that seems to have pissed off a lot of people. I, I, I don't know. It infuriates it, me. It didn't strike me that way, but I don't really know much of his 
work, to be honest. It I infuriates me because I feel like it's so hard now for people to get a head start. And I, I would love people to give money to Employee of the Month. We desperately need money for Employee of the Month. I w I'm hesitant to do a Kickstarter campaign because I don't feel it's fair to ask folks to give money to that over causes that are helping people who are starving in Africa or things like that, or down the street. Well, there's definitely ego involved. I mean, to Zach Braff, his new movie is at the top of the list of things that need to be done. Yeah, and I, I just don't see it as a priority, and he has the money, and I don't think that he needs to be asking folks for it. Well, hopefully in the future, we, he, well, that won't have to be. I mean, everything is, is coming down to doing what you want on your own terms. Yes, but at the same time, it's also this watered-down marketing campaign for people who already have money to pretend that they're just doing it on their own terms. I think he genuinely, my sense is, I don't know him from anything, I don't know his movies, but my sense is he, he needs the money to make this movie. He is not, for whatever reason, rolling in dough. I mean, that, that, that's my point, too, is like at, at every level, here's someone who, who has been on Scrubs, who has done this, but he still needs something from others. I think, I think using the word need the money is where I think that we're having a Want conflict. the money? Yeah. Because okay, I think well. for him, he wants the money. Whereas, like, I have $400 in my checking account, and I, I desperately need money, right? Do I think that it's up to others to give me that money? No. Do I think that I w people could give money to this podcast if they listen to it regularly? Yes. Well, how does I this podcast it. make money? Um, the podcast will make money if people download it. And if they continue to download it, then advertisers come and they provide sponsorship. It also makes money when people give. When, when listeners are like, you know, I really care about this and I want you to be able to go out and get more formal guests. I loved hearing from Mike Sachs. I want to hear from Ted Travelstead or I want to hear from Graydon Carter or whoever it is that they want to hear from. And so they give money so that I can edit these and get these out the door. The, my problem with someone like Zach Braff going on Kickstarter is that I feel that they can get resources elsewhere and that they don't need to go to public resources such as Kickstarter. I feel like Kickstarter should be reserved for people who are working yeah. on either humanitarian causes or don't have the type of access to VC funding and don't have the type of access to sponsorship and don't have that type of access to studios that he does. Right, or smaller so projects. I, you're right that I, I don't, I, I'm not even slighting him as a filmmaker. I actually, you know, I really like his work. It's not that. The issue for me there is that someone who is a multimillionaire, I don't like that that person is competing against people who are just starting out, mm -hmm. ultimately. My, my point, though, about the podcast but is- But most people like, don't even know that, right? So what's preventing you from the, I mean, what's preventing those you- those things aren't out there. So then this podcast provides a resource of like, what do you do when you get fired? Have so why can't it be out there? Is, is it a money issue? Uh, yeah, it is a money issue. How's, I mean, I just don't know about it. Okay. so. In order to do a podcast, it requires getting the equipment, getting a room, getting editors mm -hmm. um, to be able to turn it out faster. Mm -hmm. It requires a lot of editors. My time is money because the time that I spend here is time away from a day job to be able to support this. Mm -hmm. And going to interview people takes time. Oh, I know. And as you know from doing research, I mean, when you do your book, you're doing it while you're still on salary at a magazine that benefits from you doing your book. Well, that, I recommend that is to have a two-track system where you could have a full-time salary and then do what you want on the I side. I'm so open for that. How do I how do I do that? Um, well, there are things <laughs> one can do, I suppose. I mean, it depends on who you talk to, and it, it really depends on who you know and if someone is hiring at the time that you talk to them. So a lot of it is luck. But like, all right, to go back for a second. Wait, before when I up luck. You said that none of it is luck. <laughs> no, no, no. I, what I mean is, as far as getting published, 
I think there is some luck involved, but I think, you know, you we, were, we, we were talking about Teddy Wayne, luck being Teddy Wayne, the guy, the, I know what he did to get in these magazines, and that is not luck. It may, you know, he knew that you had to keep charging ahead even when he got rejections, which I'm sure he did. Yes. So, you know, what's luck? I mean, he didn't bump into somebody on the street and say, hey, can I show you my work? He went after these people. I said, well, my argument was, in his case and anyone else's, he's broken through. It was, not, it was not personal to Teddy Wayne. It was people who have broken through. And I made it clear that Teddy Wayne is incredibly talented and mm-hmm. competent. Um, that there is luck involved that an editor takes a chance on you. There is luck when oh, that yeah. New Yorker editor took you yes. a piece and said, gosh, this is really funny. Let me make sure that this fits okay, but for our magazine. That was after 10 years of sending submissions in, and that was after 10 years of working at Kentwell Records for $6 an hour. I still think there's luck involved in that moment happening. Well, and every time I've had that moment and will continue to have the moment. I mean, there's different I types of luck. There's, there's lottery luck, luck and making your own luck, and I think writing is making your own luck. I could not agree more. There's not a time when I don't write my own pieces. But the idea that there wasn't luck involved in meeting the right editor at the right time or an editor that was open to you or versus an editor who simply like just didn't look at it that day because they were sick or whatever the reason, that's luck. Well, yeah, that's life. I mean, that's... That's life. So maybe instead of calling it luck, we can call it life. Yeah. But that doesn't, that in no way negates talent or um, the competence, what I'm talking about is doing the hustle and all of those things. Right. Um, but I think it's it's. Uh, I think for people who succeed, sometimes they forget. Well, I think if they're smart, they don't. Because yeah, I think a lot do forget, and I think that's a shame. You know, because ten years previously they were writing to people asking for advice, and now they're not getting back to those people who are. Yes, at, that's what I mean. And that pisses me off. And then you'll find these people. I mean, with your writing, you know, like the most talented person in the room will be so generous and offer their time. I feel that I may have come off as defensive about Teddy Wayne when I think of it. The reason I, I like to use people who are super talented, I'd rather use someone who's not a joke. I'd rather use someone who's really good right, and talk right. about them. I mean, that's why on the podcast I only have No, I think it was clear. I mean, you were going after him. You were just using him as an example. Of he's a perfect example because he's so good and because he comes, he, he hits it out of the ballpark. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So I think that that's much more interesting to me. How does someone like that succeed than someone who's... who's hits a foul ball. Yeah, and just fails upwards. I'm, I'm less interested in that. Well, that pisses me off, the failing upwards. Because I'm like, that person's a joke. The um, Peter principle. Yes. Well, and Peter in general. Right. He was never, so you know, he was not Indonesian. Rising, really, he wasn't. What was he? <laughs> tell me, tell me Peter's background. <laughs> when we started this, you asked if we could do it in fiction versus nonfiction. So right. I think I'm still accepting. I wanted to do a fake backstory. <laughs> but actually, then I, I, I suggested a fake backstory saying. And it was true. And it turned out to be true. We both went to the same camp in Maryland called Valley Mill Camp. You, what were your fond memories from Valley Mill Camp? Going into the disgusting lake with shoes on for l- legal reasons because it was so disgusting. They didn't know what, that, what was at the bottom of the lake. I forgot about this. So we had to go in with shoes, uh, a, a bathing suit, no shirt, and shoes. I remember. That is really funny. Yeah. I remember a whistling contest where I claimed I could whistle, but you had to whistle with as many peanut butter crackers as you could. Mm-hmm. And I didn't actually know how to whistle, but I won because I was the only person who didn't choke. See, that camp was very bizarre. I remember a very haunting incident. Um, My mother said before I left one day, she said, you can't go swimming, you have an ear infection. Sounds reasonable. 
So we all gathered, the hundreds of boys, on the boys' side of the camp, and the, uh, the leader, the owner of the camp, was giving announcements, and he said, well, can anyone not go swimming today? And I raised my hand, I said, I, I can't go. And he said, why? I said, because I have an ear infection. And 500 boys screamed out, oh! <laughs> and that's one of the few things I remember from camp, is that I was mocked by my fellow campers because I had an ear infection. What, what kind of Lord of the Flies world was that there? So how much of that is like just the age? I mean, I was, so, I was such an unhappy kid growing up. Well, it's also the heat. That's probably why I'm so happy now when you asked, are you happy? And even though I'm broke, yeah, I am happy because I felt really unhappy as a kid. I mean, add to that. Do you remember how hot it was in those? The humidity was oh, my Lord. unbeatable. I mean, you're out there all day with flies, mosquitoes, swimming in a lake with shoes on. Oh. It was awful, and I don't know why they thought it would be some sort of um, leave it to beaver experience. I think they were just excited to be able to go to work and not have to deal yeah, with Yeah, probably, probably. But a, a lot of childhood is like that. A lot of childhood for me was just anxiety and not being where I wanted to be. And is that because you felt like you were this, like, already knew you wanted to be a humor writer? No, I didn't know what the hell. I, I wanted to be a pilot. You did? I did. I didn't know what I wanted to what do. What happened to your dreams of flying high? Um, it, I didn't want to join the military. Okay. And you never thought about creating your own airline or something like that? I'm teasing you. Um. <laughs> I should put maybe call Zach Braff, get him involved somehow. Because I feel like that's why you were like giving me this third degree of like, make it yourself. Um, you do reference w growing up in Maryland a lot. Wait, wait a second. Were you hurt <laughs> when I was giving you the third degree? A little bit of this like lecture on... It's no lecture. It's, it wasn't a lecture. I'm just in a Socratic way trying to understand <laughs> what, why you feel that you can't compete with uh, exactly. Mark Maron or Jesse Thorne or, or anyone out there. I mean, it was a compliment, really. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, look, I think that there's enough love to go around, and I think that there's total room for me to have a show. Mm -hmm. I always feel that way, and I think there is a genuine need for the show. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who don't get into New York or who wish they could. I think there are a lot of people who want to know what it's like, and I think there are, I have such a phenomenally lucky um, opportunity to know all these people who are so uniquely talented. But my point also was just because you get in the New Yorker yeah. or GQ or Esquire or Vanity Fair or wherever, your life it will not change. I don't agree with that. Well, I don't think you will change as a human being whether you, whether you do more good things or bad because you have these. I don't think your um, happiness will change. I'm already happy, so that's okay. We already, we already All right, well, then I'm speaking about myself in this case. <laughs> you know. We already established that, that I have no money. Mm -hmm. And I'm still happy. I feel very grateful to do what I do. I'm keenly aware that I could get a job at a corporation or something like that. Um, however, I don't think it's as easy to break in to get the editor job that you're talking about. I would love to know how oh, to Oh, I didn't do say that. it was easy okay. to get a job. <laughs> it just seemed like if you just do the hustle and know the right people. And no, I was talking about work. freelance writing. I was talking about freelance writing. But to get a job is tough. Yes, it is tough to get a job where you're able to do creative work on the side. That's very valuable. It's a very... But even your job sounds creative. Well, tell, tell me a little bit about your job because it sounds creative within it too. I mean, you're getting to write these really fabulous books and I really hope if people have not read and here's the kicker, they go out and read it. And if you're like, who is this guy who gets to interview all these phenomenal people, whether it's Marshall Brickman or Dick Cavett, um, it's also the same person who wrote Your Wildest Dreams Within Reason and you see how funny he is. Wow, that was nice. That was... Uh, what was the question? Um, the question is, 
what do you do at your job? What well, do you do what I do at my job is editorial, more so than writing. Okay, and what does that mean specifically in your case? In my case, um, we work with authors to make the article ready to be published. You know, it, it's working, some who are very good at it, some who are new at it, and there's a lot that goes into it. There's um, factual issues, copy issues, uh, line editing issues. You want the piece to read um, properly. There are words that can't be used in Vanity Fair. Um, Which are those words? One is opine. Really? Yeah. O-P-I-N-E? Yeah. How come? I don't know. It's just one of those words that it's not Vanity Fair uh, stylistically. What about it? Speaks what about it? I don't know. I mean, over the years, someone decided that that was not a word Who to... Who decides that? I would guess uh, an editor-in-chief. I'm not sure which one. Okay. Would it be one that's been there for the last decade? Perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Does he have fabulous hair? I don't know. I've never seen him. Silky Rude. <laughs> well, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but most of what I do is... Um, is we're not dry, it's creative, but it's certainly, I mean, what I do on the side is what I want to do. But, but you're able to do that, and I would say this for most um, magazines, is that if you're a top editor, they like that you're doing books. I'm not a top editor, though. I'm really not. Um, and I In don't know if In my mind, you are. Does it matter? No, <laughs> probably not. It doesn't, I don't know if they like it or not. I mean, there are people, there's, there's free time there, and people do different things, and I think... I don't think they, they feel I represent the magazine by putting out books. They don't. Okay, so something like in Here's the Kicker doesn't necessarily get no. endorsed on the pages of Vanity it Fair. It will. I mean, it'll be on the books page, but I don't think they're, they're not going to hold a party for me on the book release date. Um, and also, I do keep sort of a quiet... Um, okay, so let's pick, let's pick people so it doesn't feel so personal. Let's say someone like a Rick Hertzberg at the New Yorker. Well, that guy's major. I mean, he, he's yeah. a major writer. Unbelievable writer. Yeah. So if he's writing a book, I would assume that that helps the New Yorker. I think so, um, and, but that is usually nonfiction. I mean, humor is a very strange thing because I don't work for a humor magazine. You know, if I were writing a book on Jackie Onassis, it might be viewed in a more positive light. Not that this is—is is that because she hasn't been covered enough in, in Vanity Fair? Incredible! I know it's her, the Astor family. Um, there's a there's a number <laughs> that we work on exclusively long after they've passed. It's incredible. But you know, nothing has been done on her uh, socks and hose. Or her ice cream flavors. Or her ice cream flavors. Which is, this is going to be my next book, her ice cream flavors. topics. And then you have them in two bowls in the shape of the little gla in the glasses. And she was lactose intolerant. And which nobody knew. No, not until now. But that's probably why she was married to a Jew for a long time. No, a Greek. She was also married to... Oh, she wouldn't marry the Jew. Right, I apologize. What you, uh, I apologize. She would not marry the guy who's Aristotle Jewish. Onassis. He was Greek, but after him she had a Jewish boyfriend. That's right, but she they never did marry, marry no. Because he's lactose intolerant. And uh, other issues, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I like when I say the same thing that you do, and then you refute what I'm saying, and then agree with it after. What did I s refute? Like, with luck, and then I s said that, that's right, she didn't marry him. She was just dating him because he was Jewish. And how did I refute that? You were like, no. <laughs> no, because I thought you were talking about uh, Aristotle and Nassus. That's a different, different. She had several husbands. Right. Um, so anyway, I don't think people won't know that we really like each other. I know it's it's just, it's just sort of a unless he, they're she, comedy writers, then they'll know that we really then they'll like read each between other. the lines and figure out that we really don't care less about each other. Oh, is that so? No, funny? that's so mean. I'm so yeah. sorry. But we we I we started this by saying that when you were young, you were probably really mean to me. Well, why do you think that? Um, 
You know, it, it's a projection. I mean, it was just a, a guess. What, do you think I was in a popular group? I, you're very cutting. Like, your humor is very cutting. In person is cutting? No, you couldn't be nicer. Yeah, so why would you're you think? You're a mensch. I mean, truly a mensch. Well, I was talking about when we were young. You strike me as someone who was very shy. Yes, I was very shy. And you shy. said that you were. And your humor is so well-developed that I think it was already quite well-developed when you were young. And I, can, I just had this fear that you would have been mean to me. I don't think kid. it was uh, developed. No, what I liked a lot was Letterman sarcasm. Yeah. Because it was seemingly easy to do. I mean, you, I came off as an asshole by doing it. Yes. But it was a very seemingly, it was like humming a melody. You could pretend you could do it. I mean, when I said that, did it strike a chord? Or were you like, no, I would have been totally sweet? No, I, I think I was, I, I never. Was mean? No, I don't think so. Okay. No. Then I take it back. I, that was my fear that you would have been mean to me. No. Because you're so f um, funny and your humor can be quite cutting that I was like, oh, you would have no, but the, torn the, me to pieces. The cutting is, is not going after p nice people. It's going after egotistical. I see. Um, delusional people who feel that by renting an airplane and dropping propaganda leaflets, he, this guy's going to get back his girlfriend. I know, but some of your characters are really well-meaning. I mean, they're the, the absurd ones who are fundamentally crazy when they're chasing after women and stuff. Like, well, they that, mean that, well. They're just, they're just... Well, that's a major thing. I mean, these guys are not good with women, and that came from... So maybe that's where my projection came on a little bit. I would have been very shy. But not cutting. No. I would not have been cut I mean, I, I find what I enjoy about your writing is that they're, they're misled, you know, so that they're, they're well, insane behavior. All these people are basically <laughs> living in the suburbs of Maryland in a, in a small apartment, working retail, and not having a girlfriend. Yeah. And that was what my fear was. But you're happily married mm -hmm. and you have a kid. Right. Um, so did you always have no trouble in that area? Were you, were you no, I had tremendous things? trouble. Not tremendous. I mean, just I couldn't. It was a language that I could not speak. Was, was speaking to women as equals or right. peers? No, I mean, I felt they were better than I was. And how do you feel now? Well, I don't have as much problem because it's not for an ulterior motive. If I meet a woman, it's professional or friendly. Yeah. I'm not asking them to go out dancing, which I probably still couldn't do. But it's terrifying that so much pressure, and I think things have changed to a great, I mean, I, I wouldn't ask a guy out now, but most women would. Well, that's a problem too. I mean, um, a lot of the women that I liked, or even girls in school, were very shy too, and yeah. I found out later they wanted to meet me, but they were shy as well. I'm so, they, so shy about that stuff. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, that, yeah. And you look back, especially. And I feel for boys that they, ha I mean, I have no idea how in seventh grade or sixth grade or even ninth grade or at 23 or 37 you say, would you like to go to the movies? Well, I, that's the thing too. I think a lot of people view guys, especially frat boys, as being, looking down on women. I think a lot of the times it's them being terrified. Well, okay. And, and looking at them on a pedestal. And I can also say that like, Suicide bombers are terrified, and that's what propels them to go into what they do. And I really do believe it's important to know the humanity behind behavior, but it's how it's executed. Exactly. I mean, it comes out as, as disgusting. You know, it comes out yeah. as so doing there's, horrible there's one things. Way to, there's one way to empathize with what's going on with the person, but not necessarily. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not condoning it in the least. But what I'm saying is for some people can do it in a way where they're at parties and acting like an asshole. For me, it was staying at home and watching... SNL or yeah. watching 
Letterman, it, you know, I handled it differently. Okay, so for you, like becoming a humor writer, because you were saying that it's not simply a skill, it's a way of looking at life. No, I think it's a way of looking at life, but I, I think it's a skill like anything that you have to hone it. Yeah. And you start off raw, and everyone starts off bad, and you have to go through a few years of just being bad. Yeah. But hopefully you can do that in private. Hopefully you won't be out there on the internet taking chances and looking like a fool. So now, okay, you didn't really tell me about your job at Vanity Fair. I just wanted to hear a little bit about that. Well, the job is great. I mean, I go there every day, and uh, we work on these monthly deadlines. And um, we, you know, each month we'll work with one author, and we hone these pieces from beginning to end so that by the time it goes in, it's clean, it's, there's no copy problems, there's no fact-checking problems. It's good to go. And that sometimes it takes four weeks, sometimes it takes three weeks. Um, but the downtime I do have, I do like to write on the side, and that would be books, which I'm now writing my second interview book, which hopefully I will finish in the next few weeks. Who are you interviewing for that book in addition to myself? Um, Henry Beard, the co-founder of National Lampoon, Adam Resnick, Adam McKay. Adam McKay wrote the forward for it, and here's the kicker. And yeah. It's such a funny forward. Yeah, he's great. Um, God, <coughs> Paul Feig's in there. Oh, he's fabulous, too. I don't Stephen know. Merchant. Stephen Martin, and I don't know the first two you were mentioning with Adam Resnick. Adam Resnick was the what, worked for the original Letterman. Wow! And then he, he he created Cabin Boy, and Get a Life. Oh, how wonderful! Yeah, he's amazing. I love him. Great, great writer. And we, no. Your fa- your hand. My hand. Oh, um, where was it? It was on the mic. It was on the mic. Uh, he's a great guy. So anyway, I, I get to meet all these great people, and there'll be some surprises in there. It's going to be big. It's going to be about 550 to 600. Oh, my goodness. So how many days a week are you working on that book, and how many days a week are you working on pieces? Um, well, I would say uh, three weeks out of the month are pieces for Vanity Fair. Then that one week, I really try to uh, just write. And also, it's all downtime, you know, so lunchtime and nights when I can get away with it, early mornings. It's incredible. It's, and and yeah. what are the types of pieces you're editing at Vanity Fair? Um, it's usually, uh, I, I prefer hard news stories rather than, as we were talking, the Astor family and Jackie O and things like that. So if there's something going on in the Middle East or if there's something that is historical, a lot of great writers, Douglas Brinkley writes for Vanity Fair. This sounds so exciting too because then you get to not just do comedy and your comedy can come from this dark place, which That's is where the thing. I like it. That's, well, <laughs> you know, if I wrote, if I had to write comedy every day, I had friends that write for various shows. Yeah. And they come home and they're exhausted. Yes, you know, as I, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do, I think I could do the job, but I don't know if I could write on the side. Yes, and do your own stuff on top of that. Right. And to me at this point, doing my own stuff is, is important. Um, yes. I mean, I'd love to write for some of these shows, but I think I'm, I don't know if I'm too you old would? for that. You would? Would no. you move to, to L.A.? No, I wouldn't. I want to stay in New York. Yeah. And quite frankly, I like having complete freedom to write books. You yeah? Know, I don't have censors. I don't have executive uh, producers telling me what to write, what not to write. Yeah. So it, I'm lucky in that sense. I get to what, write whatever I ro- want, however long I want. What's the difference between a humor writer and a satirist I and a know. comedy writer? I think people who call themselves satirists can be just taken outside and shoved because yeah. I think uh, they are not getting any of that Jackie O ice cream hell no they're not I mean anything if anyone calls himself anything besides comedy writer if you call yourself a humorist or a satirist you know go fuck yourself I, I don't call myself anything 
you know, I, I'm still embarrassed to call myself anything. Not even your first name. It's no. It's embarrassing. I just call myself Yahweh or no. him. <laughs> but <laughs> not man. Rufus. <laughs> well. I, but that makes sense to me that you get this tremendous kick and freedom out of writing your own books and that would be different where the TV show, let's say it's a phenomenal comedy, even like the Colbert Report. Yeah, it's amazing. Which is just brilliant. But I don't know if I could even do it creatively. That show is amazing. I mean, oh, those writers have to go in every morning and produce in the first few hours. I think it's an amazing, I mean, I, I talk don't know about how it all the time. they do that. I think the whole show is incredible it's, and I think he's- He's a genius. Yeah. really is a genius. And supposedly one of the nicest people. I can't, I, and it's, I just, I love that he exists. I love Stephen Colbert exists. I love Paul Newman exists. I love uh, Julia Paul Childs. Newman? Well, I know he's passed, and Julia oh. Childs has passed, but that yeah. they were brilliant beyond brilliant. Yeah, and, and nice still, people. still nice people. Yes, I know, and how rare is that, really? Especially in comedy. Yeah, well, that is the, a big part of this show, too, is only trying to interview people who are really good eggs and menches. Have you interviewed anyone who wasn't? Yes. Can you say who they were? No. Can you imply who they were? Um, no. What did they do that was rude? Nothing rude to, to me personally. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to I'm really trying to find people who succeed in life, mm -hmm. but still manage to um, have what appears to be a moral compass. That's interesting. Well, I think that's an important part of success because I think if uh, most good writers have a good moral compass. The ones I like, the ones, the one, this uh, how you were talking about, your job seems so ideal to me because you're covering real factual um, life. I like real factual because mm -hmm. that's, that, that's, that's helpful, than, you yeah, know. Than wishy-washy factual. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not redundant and also it's not actually in English, so it's nice, what's nice about yeah, it. I like loosey-goosey <laughs> factual. <laughs> I like that you cover um, news and, and have depth to your writing because then the comedy can come from life. Well, I think it should, right? Because if comedy comes from old episodes of The Simpsons, it's yes. going to be very shallow. Yes. Well, that happens though to some people. Who, first of all, some people are really good at writing those things, but also I find in Los Angeles sometimes you just wrote for TV shows. Yes. You know, inevitably that's that's what you're around. Well, I think that makes a difference. As some of the older people that I interviewed, I interviewed Irv Brecker for the first book. He was 93. Wow. Wrote for the Marx Brothers. Wow. And he started writing at 17. And he was just a street kid from New York. I love this so much. So he his humor to me was more had more depth to it because he wasn't referencing anything and the shows that we grew up on i mean even pa i mean that's unbelievable but i, I meant you know the norman lear, lear shows yeah y you know those could be considered comedies and they certainly talked about relevant and, and oh yeah darker issues. Great. and now we're having a resurgence i feel like with enlightened and <coughs> um girls show and bored to death mm -hmm. you know shows that are comedies but or i think they are comedies i think the sopranos is a comedy um, you think what is sopranos you know what? I think that is. I th in some ways, I thought Breaking Bad was a comedy. Yes. And Mad Men. Th those are the best type of comedy to me. Yeah, absolutely. That they have the Shakespearean tragedy to exactly. them. Exactly. Right. And that, um, that's the thing. Would you call people who write for Mad Men or Breaking Bad comedy writers? I wouldn't no. even know what to call them. But no. there's a lot of humor in those. But I like that. That I mean, my hope is to break into TV writing to be able to write for shows like that and to not have to worry. Like the people who I admire the most are ones who can write for whatever genre uh, their piece calls for. Right. But also, as you said, tethered to some sort of reality. Yes, it has to be grounded. Because that makes the comedy better. I mean, the comedy <coughs> in a Scorsese movie, to me, is funnier than a comedy. Um, <coughs> I don't want to mention any specific names, but might not have any connection to real life or character. 
you keep it really ambiguous so that no one knows what you're talking about mm -hmm. and that it really helps reinforce your Thanks. point. Yeah, I was talking to um, a very successful screenwriter. I, I, I can name him, right? If he's, if he's, a, he's an excellent screenwriter. Yeah. Alexander Payne. Oh, uh, he's brilliant. Yeah, okay, so fabulous screenwriter. Amazing, I love him. And we were talking about you know, things we struggle with and I was trying to explain to him that I have a fear of success and mm. he has the fear of failure. Okay. And that those are two different things. That's interesting. So for failure for him, what his his belief in himself would be lowered if he didn't if a movie he put out didn't do well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's and a lot of pressure. It's so. so much pressure and you know, these are all different things that we all you know, when you're talking about O C D before versus depression or borderline, all of these things are horrible. And everyone deals with different things, as you were saying, although I still maintain the fact that there are people who, who are more content than others with their lives. Um, some people who are genuinely would describe themselves as happy, and they mean it. They're not hiding something. But what are you afraid to achieve? Um, I think that I've held back in my career very much so in ways that I, I, I think I was very scared. I didn't know how to handle success, and it's not until my 30s. Okay, but some people never reach that point. Some people... Yeah die with that, at least Absolutely. you did. So you can't be tough on yourself saying, oh, the 20s were a waste because I, I, I felt I wasted all this time because, like, I look at my scripts now, I feel so good about them, and I, books, you know, I'm like, I'm so ready now to publish, and right. I'm so hungry for it. Um, I'm so hungry to be on shows, I'm, I'm competent and love to work. So I think that I self-sabotaged for a long, long, long time, and we talked about um, briefly. This was on the air? This, you and I today. No, I'm talking about Alexander about Payne. Oh, no, 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 that's the conversation was not on the air. How did you meet Alexander Payne? Um, I met Alexander Payne uh, through Teddy Wayne. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Damn him. <laughs> through Zach Braff on Kickstarter. Um, I, I, met, I met him uh, through, through um, a mutual friend. Okay. Um, and that is the joy of when you do start to break in to this business, is that other good people will take you seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, if yeah. they recognize that you're a good writer as well. Mm -hmm. And those moments are wonderful, even though the gatekeepers still exist. They'll always exist. They'll always exist. Well, let's, let's like send them somewhere. Well, hopefully you'll be the gatekeeper. I, what I try to do is try to just not haze back. No, and I think, I, I don't, I think that's a good lesson because yeah. nothing good can come from it. it. Beyond a moral standpoint, just from a business standpoint. Yes. Because you never know, this person asking advice today, who knows where it will be? I mean, it's just. Yeah. But more, you know, as important as the moral, why be rude to someone asking for advice? That's where I feel. I mean, ultimately, what, you know, there was no need for that, and it doesn't mean that there aren't moments when I, um, I'm not short or don't respond in the way that I would like to. But I always aspire to be. Right. That's the thing. I mean, what pisses me off is people worse. who just never get back, oh, and I still find that I, you know, I'll. I'm having a tough time getting some people for the book. They just don't get back to me. Well, so I have to say that that also, the beauty of growing up in Washington, D.C. is that I know I can get my congressman on <laughs> before I can get someone who's like a, you know, C-level Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes it's the C-levels who are more difficult I because they want to act as A-level. Yes, and, and I also find that the competition and fear of being threatened, I have noticed that people right above me, for the most part, yeah. generally tend to be much more challenging than you know, it, it, than the highest level people who get back to me right away. They may say no, but they do so nicely and they get no. back right away. Yes, you know what? I don't mind. No, I asked John Waters a few times if he'd be interviewed. 
And he said no, but he called me back and said no. And that's fine. I don't mind a I no. I love that. To me, that would make my well, day. He is the best. I love him. <laughs> so obsessed. It was great. And you know what? I wasn't upset. He's a busy guy. I understand. But yeah. to not get back to me at all pisses me off. And it goes on all the time. That, that's the part I find so unacceptable and odd because you run into these people. Like the weird part is yes, that, right. that, that I see them and then I'm supposed to act like they didn't just fart. And they did. But I'm a big boy. I can take no. I I, was, I don't like to be ignored and I have to say that's also a thing in New York that I love about um, that's why I think everyone should work here at some point or live here at some point is you know I can ask money for cancer and someone will say no and it's not because they're pro cancer I just they're so honest about it they may have something else that they're they're working on or whatever it is right whereas in other places where people are scared to right. say no it almost comes off as more aggressive to me. It is much. It's very passive aggressive. You have to assume aggressive. that they are pro-cancer. And there's nothing wrong with saying no by email. I mean, how how hard is that? Um, this was so much fun. I'm like a huge fan of your work, and that's how I discovered you. And um, it's just like even nicer that you happen to be a lovely human uh, being. I hope I didn't come off. I, I was playing devil's advocate in some in some cases. You support the podcast. You would encourage people to give money to the podcast. Yes, everything I said, uh, <laughs> do not do the opposite of. <laughs> Whatever that was. <laughs> um, Mike Sachs, thank you so much, and I can't wait to have you on in the future again. This is lovely. Well, my book comes out in a year, so hopefully I can come back. Please do. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Check out our website, employeeofthemonthshow.com, to find out about live tapings as well as ways you can get involved and donate um, and support this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful podcast. I know I'm totally humble about it, but it's awesome. It's so exciting to hear from these folks, and I am so grateful to Brian Fountain, Joel Arnold, Ian Mazoff, Shockwave, Common Rotation, Danielle Mavial, and especially all of you for listening. And how could I forget my straight man, my dog Lady, who is snoring right now. You can't really hear her, but it's really loud snoring. And also, I just don't want her to feel like she has to be a human or straight. She can be anything she wants, but it would be nice if she spoke a little bit more, just contributed a little bit more. It's hard to be the one who's always giving in that way. But she's a great listener, um, and so are all of you. Thanks so much. Bye.